For those who are regulars to the show, you would now be expecting me to talk for a minute or so to frame up the discussion that you're about to hear so you can understand what you're getting yourself into. But this week, this week I'm not going to do that. But this week, I'm going to let my guest, Fiona De Stefanis, I'm going to let her story unfold in front of you for you to absorb. Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. Today, my guest is Fiona De Stefanis. Fiona, welcome to the show. Hello, Bryn. Thank you very much. So, one of the questions I always ask my guests at the start is their relationship with Western Australia. Mm-hmm. So, you were born in Northern. I was born in Northern, yes. With uh, Italian immigrant parents. Yes. Then moved to the Swan Valley. Yes. And then at the age of 13, went off to Tasmania. Yes. And then came back at mm-hmm. the age of 19. Tell me, what was it like originally growing up in Western Australia? And then did you miss it when you go to Tasmania? And then why did you come back? Yeah. So I grew up in a place called Swan View, and, um, which is at near Greenmount, near yeah. the hills there. And it was great. I loved it. We were, you know, played with the neighbours' kids. It was that sort of community where yeah. you, you had your neighbours and ran around and lots of my school friends were close by. So I grew up um, playing lots of sports, very outdoorsy. Um, yeah, loved loved it. Loved where I lived. Loved all the community that we had around us. So, yeah, I had a great childhood there. And I was absolutely devastated when we moved to Tasmania. Why, did, why was that? I think, you know, you're 13 and so you've, you've got like your clicky little girlfriends and you're sort of going into those teenage years where yeah. it's like I had a boyfriend and, you know, oh. I was starting to, you know, get into fashion and, and, and really I was really into my school as well and you yeah. had these close... It was like being ripped out of everything that you know and be dumped in the middle of nowhere. So Tasmania, where we moved to, was a place called Devonport. And hello, everyone in Devonport. But um, it's tiny. Like, it was right. like Summer Bay sort of thing. Right. Like, it was just this little village, little place. And and I just couldn't believe it. I moved from somewhere where there were shops and malls and theatres and cinemas and stuff to absolute place where there was nothing. Wow. Like they didn't have a McDonald's or anything. What was the what was the reason behind it? It was my dad. So I actually didn't speak to him for about six months after that. But Did you, uh, <laughs> I was like not happy with him. Uh, yeah. So my dad was like a land developer, and what he realised in Tasmania is that they just weren't developing their land, and it was a great opportunity. And he right. went over there and bought up a lot of land that was sort of on the river front, right. and he introduced house and land package deals, which they hadn't had over there before that so he took us all over there because he um had this great opportunity and yeah i sort of went over kicking and screaming and right i wasn't very happy but after i lived there now i look back you know as you reflect back and i'm, I'm glad we went it was a very different lifestyle and you know i learned a lot and have some great friends yeah. from there now but we, we, was there always an intent to come back for me yeah. absolutely i would tell everyone that listened that it was like the minute i can get out of here the minute i'm old enough to escape this island, um, yeah. I'm, I'm out, off the island, I'm out. <laughs> I'm, I'm specifically back to Western Australia? Or? Um, not initially, so I just sort of applied for university. I literally applied for every university that was outside of Tasmania. Right. And What did you do at university? Uh, psychology soci- and sociology. Right. And I got a, uh, I actually was accepted into a few universities, and then I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll go back home. I always oh, called home. Perth home, even though I'd been away for seven years. I was always like... I'm going to go back home, and so I came back to Perth for, for uni, and yeah, I loved it. But um, it's funny, because when you live in Tasmania, um, you live on the island, and you call anyone else in Australia mainlanders. 
Yeah. So it was this real us and mainlanders. And, right. and so it was like I was going back to the mainland and I couldn't be more excited. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Cool. Tell me about your career because I know you're very proud of it. I am. Yes. It, it's an interesting career. It's very organic. It, I, I thought I was going to be a psychologist. So obviously I went to uni to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, never actually did that. So, so you, went, you went to read psychology at university because you wanted to be a psychologist. I did. That's cool. Because I went to university, did psychology, had no idea what I was going to do with it. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I just always saw myself as, as a doctor, like someone that was helping others. And, okay. And just, I always thought that's what I would do. Yeah. Where does the helping come from in your journey? Um, yeah, that's it. Uh, you know, it's interesting. As a child, I was always sort of the one in the group that people tended to go to right. and sort of unloaded their issues and their problems and I was always just known as a problem solver as someone that could help with things and I think I was just a really good listener yeah and that was just something I always had through childhood and I don't know where that comes from like how that sort of came about but I was just always that person that people sort of came to and I had a lot of problems myself so (laughs) I don't know maybe I I was able to empathize because you know I had a bit of a turbulent childhood so I was like I think I could look at people and they could tell me something. I'd be like, really? No worries. Like, you know, no, no judgment. I think, cause I would always go, that's, I've got more crap than that in my life. So you're doing okay. You know? <laughs> so yeah, so I think that was it. And I just thought that was what I could continue doing in my life. was just mm. problem solving other people's problems. Indeed. Not so much my own. <laughs> so into the career. Yeah. And I ended up working in a call center while I was at uni to sort of help with, obviously paying for uni and getting my way through uni and I just fell in love with it which is weird I know people think call centers are like hell I actually loved it the energy and every day was different and it was forever changing so it was a telco that I worked for and it was a startup we didn't call them startups back then yeah it was just the way it was yeah and I started out in this burnt out warehouse in East Perth and there was just a little handful of us and we were all on the phones taking sales calls or customer service calls. Like even the CEO was taking calls and wow. we would take orders of mobile phones over the phone and we'd post post the mobile phones out to them. And um, yeah, and I quickly became like a team leader and then a customer service manager. And, and as the company grew really quickly, like, you know, by the time I was sort of in a management role, I was only like 20. Wow. I was still really young and, you know, the call centre was 100 people, 200 people and it was just growing and and I loved it. I loved learning so much. Like, I had no idea what I was doing at the age of 20, managing people, like, hello. So it was just that constant learning and the constant buzz in a call mm. centre. Call centres are noisy and yeah. busy and, and a bit chaotic and I think I, I like chaos <laughs> in all elements of my life. So um, call centre was a great starting point for me in my career. Yeah. And from there, I just continued in customer service and operations. And I ended up um, going overseas for a little while, working in call centers. But then I ended up in Sydney in my in my sort of mid-20s. I moved over to Sydney and was working in large insurance companies over there, doing call center work, customer service work. And then I moved more into operations, you know, customer complaints and mm-hmm. billing and that sort of thing. And I did that for a, quite a while. I sort of see my career as in two parts the first part was very much that operational based customer service based sort of supporting lots of teams and building high performance teams 
And then it came to a point where I went, I met a person who was a consultant and they were like, why don't you do more of this sort of work? So then I switched, switched over and, and I became more of a consultant right. and helped other people build high-performing teams and helped other people build strategies and operating models. And so all the stuff you'd done before yeah, in-house, in-house to do. I started helping other people do it. And that's mm. where I ended up honing my career into being more of a specialist around strategy and operating models. So my yeah. real passion became how do you create an environment where people can bring their whole selves to work. Right. That's what I'm really passionate about. So people can be creative and feel comfortable and safe and break the rules and, you know, that, yeah. that old leave your personality at the door or leave your emotions at yeah. the door type of work environment. You know, I, I never really related to that. So it's like how do you mm. create environments where people can be their best selves? Yeah. So that's what I'm What are some of the bigger about. projects you worked on? Oh, um, one of the biggest ones I worked on was definitely with BHP. So BHP, yep. I was um, a consultant in there and we did a global technology strategy and mm. it was huge. You sort of look at it and you think, God, the budget on that was massive and yeah. the reach of it was massive and, and what we did was quite groundbreaking. So that was definitely one that I'm pretty proud of and, and there was only a couple of us that did it together. We, we sort of just went in there and did it and it was a great experience. So and I've done a few of those since then, but... Um, so that's on a scale, but I think some of the other things I'm really proud of is I've done quite a few non-for-profits. Yes. And I've gone in and I've done strategy days just for free, gone in and I've sat with the team and helped them think about their non-for-profit as a business because a lot yeah. of non-for-profits don't Very true. manage them as a business. Yes. So I think some of the proudest work I've done is actually working for yeah. non-for-profits and helping them visualize what their organizations can be and help them strategize yeah and i I find in the non-for-profit you're working closer with the end customer yes and people are so passionate yeah and so they're there for all the right reasons Hmm. but not necessarily do they have all the right skills or the knowledge to execute and bring it together so i love really make a difference yes that's what i love i love that i can bring my skills in and help them with my time and stuff and, and see something really positive come out of it, see positive change come out of it. Yeah. Which you don't always necessarily see when you're working in a large corporate. Very true. Mm. Yeah, I've worked in, been a former management consultant, I've worked on a lot of really big projects. Big, yeah. And, you, you know, it's all very, very, very important. Oh. The budgets are huge, oh, huge. and massive. Yes. Big egos. Do you actually meet the person who's, like the consumer no. or this, that, and the other, yeah. And it's very difficult to feel the positive change. It's very difficult to go, I helped make that happen. I contributed to that. And yes. I think one of the things that corporates are trying to do more and more is give everyone a line of sight to say, this is how you contribute yes. to the organisation. That's still very difficult to do when, you know, you're like 5,000 people deep. and Yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's more of a sort of mental journey than it is a feeling yes yeah it's very hard to be connected Mm. in in those large organizations to you know the greater good or Mm. so i think yeah i do enjoy the smaller startups or the non-for-profits definitely i love that stuff yeah so you're in the middle of your career yes tell me what happened in october 2016 oh 2015 15 actually yeah um you texted me oh did i sorry Yes, no, it was 2015. It was right. yeah, just over three years ago. Mm. I, I collapsed at work 
and um, I thought I had the flu. Like I had all these symptoms for a few months. I was um, a couple of weird symptoms. I was very itchy all the time. Yeah. So I thought. What like in your skin? And- yeah, and I couldn't. I'd scratch and scratch so much I'd bleed, and I and I couldn't get to the itch. It was like so frustrating. So I changed all my washing powders, and I threw out my sheets, and I thought yeah. it was I was allergic to powders or something. So I was like, oh, this is really annoying, and and um, I was getting this thing called restless legs, but I didn't know it was restless legs at the time. Yeah. So restless legs is basically you lay down at night and your legs just keep moving. Like yeah. you can't actually control your legs. You can't get them to just stay. Yeah. in one place and so I was like oh this is weird so I cut out coffee and I stopped drinking alcohol and I thought that was just yeah I was just a bit anxious and stuff so yeah. I was like you know so that offline world changing you just cha- yeah exactly and I, I had back pain and sore eyes and headaches and all these things and I always thought there was a reason for it that like you can explain yeah. stuff away until one day at work it was the most bizarre feeling. I sat in this meeting and I'd worked with these people for years. I knew everyone. And I looked around the room and I couldn't remember anyone's names. Ooh. And it was just this moment of like, something's wrong. Like something's really wrong right now. So I got up and I went to the bathroom and I remember just sort of leaning in the bathroom toilet going, I think I might need to go somewhere and yeah. this isn't okay. And as I this, came, this is, serious. this is serious. And as I came out of the bathroom, I just hit the deck. I just, fell and collapsed and within 24 hours I was um, diagnosed with kidney failure and it was it was just from that point on my whole world changed it just got turned upside down and it's been a journey for me over over the last three years since that yeah I had no idea I was sick I, I and to be honest, I didn't even really know. I knew what your kidneys did, but yeah. <laughs> I don't think I had any appreciation for how important yeah. your kidneys were to so, overall health. So tell me a bit more about the journey over the last couple of years from a medical point of view. Yeah, so from a medical point of view, I was in hospital for 10 days to get that diagnosis. They do a lot of tests, so they actually have to go into your kidney with a kidney biopsy. So a large needle was injected into my back. Um, yeah. And they take out parts of your kidney to actually look at your kidney and to decide, is it an acute kidney failure? Which means, can we treat it and give us some fluids, just add lots of water and a few drugs, and it might come back? Yeah. Or is it completely gone? And, and after we did all these tests, which took about 10 days, mm-hmm. we realized that both my kidneys were completely gone. I'd had an overall kidney function of about 8%. Whoa. So a normal adult around my age in their 40s would have probably about 80, 90% kidney function. Like it does wear and tear, you know, it's never going to be 100%. Number of late nights out. Yeah, and drinking and, you know, all that sort of fun stuff that you do. Uh, So mine was 8%. So anything under 15% is complete kidney failure. So I was in complete kidney failure and um, I had surgery straight away. So they put a tube through my neck into my heart um and it was two prongs that came out um two tubes and what it was was so i could have dialysis right so basically what that means is they hook me up to a machine yeah for four hours at a time three times a week and that machine manually does what my kidneys used to do which is clean my blood filter my blood out of all the toxins and takes the fluid off my body so i my body physically couldn't do that anymore and if you let those toxins build up, 
and the fluid build up you die obviously yeah. so um, my toxin level again um, was extremely high my toxins were up around uh, a thousand when when I was diagnosed and, and normally, normally be... about 80 90 right. so yeah so yeah. I was in a lot of trouble yeah yeah and so we did a couple of rounds of dialysis and because I was quite a small person and I wasn't carrying a lot of fluids, my doctor decided, do you know what? We're not going to put you on permanent dialysis, even though you're in complete kidney failure. Right. We're going to try you on some drug therapy and diet. So you're going to have to make some serious changes to your life. Yeah. And we're going to monitor you and see how you go. Right. So I actually lived for two years. Right. Through that without going on dialysis full time, which was very exciting for me because as you yeah. can imagine, living on a machine is is not fun. It's yeah. quite horrendous. It's very hard on your body. It's it's quite hard. Were you back at work during those two years? So I did go back to work. It, it wasn't the same. Um, I'll be honest. I'm quite a worker. Like I love I loved working. Yeah. So I was you know I'd easy put in sixty seventy hours a week without worrying about. I'd, I'd work weekends. I'd work late. Like I loved it. And you know I just that wasn't. I wasn't capable of doing that anymore. So yeah. um, I don't have a family. I don't have children. So work was everything to me. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, no, I wasn't able to carry on like that. I had to make some serious changes. Yeah. Yeah. So this carries on for two years. So two years, I lived like that. I, I became a teetotaler. That was probably, I know it sounds weird, that was my biggest change. I had to stop drinking yeah. alcohol. And um, Was that any, hard? It was. It was. I I loved socialising. I loved nothing more better to me than having a glass of wine with friends and dinner, and I loved all that. So I actually just stopped. I I literally sort of stopped going out at night time. Right. I just went. I can't do that anymore. I can't drink. So. I'm and not... and because I can't drink, that also equals I can't go out. For me, it was. That was right. the only way I could become a teetotaler. So I think for a good six months, I just kind of shut myself off and. And also I was exhausted all the time. So yeah. what I, I had to make a conscious decision. What is my priorities in life now that I'm living with this health? Because like yeah. I said, my life completely got turned upside down. And I thought to myself, I need a purpose to get out of bed every morning. I don't have children. I don't have a family. So what is going to make me want to stay alive and get out of bed every day? And that was my job. Yeah. So I went, well, I will prioritize myself going to work five days a week. I'm still going to try and do that as much yeah. as I can. And on the weekends, I'll just sleep and recover. So I'm ready for the Monday to go again. Yeah. So that was what my life became. I wow. became a Monday to Friday work and I'd go to work and I'd give it my all. And by the end of the day, I would be so exhausted. I would just get home and I'd be in bed by seven o'clock, you know, sleep, passed out absolutely exhausted and I'd do that Monday to Friday and then on the weekend some weekends I wouldn't even get out of bed I would just sleep and stay in my pajamas and I would try and do one activity on the weekend like catch up with one friend or do one brunch or one breakfast but that's how I lived my life for two years yeah right very and different and then two years elapsed two years elapsed and I collapsed at work again <laughs> Right. So it was like deja vu. It's like I just bang. I hit same the deck. toilet? No, different, different, different building this time. Um, but same boss. I was actually really <clears> lucky. I'd had the same boss for seven years, so he knew me as a healthy person. Well, as we thought, I was healthy, and then he saw me obviously collapse and go through my illness, and um, he said to me, "I'll support you through this no matter what." So I was very wow. lucky 
to have him in my life because he let me sort of <clears throat> be more flexible in my job and come and go as I please. And if I had to go do dialysis or if I had to, you know, go to the hospital or whatever, he was very good with me. So I was very lucky with that. So yeah. when I collapsed the second time, I was back in hospital and this time I was at 2% kidney function. Wow. So I probably wouldn't have lasted another 48 hours or so. So I was pretty lucky. I got into hospital when I did. So that was straight into surgery. And the next day I was straight on dialysis and it was permanent dialysis after that. So permanent dialysis means? Means that um, <clears throat> I have to have dialysis three times a week. So I would literally be hooked up to the dialysis machine and it would filter my blood for four, four hours. By the time you sort of get there and get hooked up, it's like a five hour sort of experience. Um, and the machine would do my kidney function for me three times a week. And if I didn't do it, then I, would, I wouldn't be here today. Hmm. So it was very much a life support yeah. machine. And I, I lived like that for eight months. Hmm. And it took me eight months or so to get on the wait list. So I had no one that could give me a kidney. So as you probably know, we can live as humans with one kidney. Mm -hmm. We don't need both. Um, so if I had a donor, a family or friend, I could have obviously received a kidney from them, but I didn't have anyone. So I had to go on a waiting list, which is where people say that when they die, they're happy to donate their organs, um, which is an amazing gift. And I was lucky enough in July last year, July the 17th, to, well, I got the phone call on the July the 16th to say we have a kidney for you. See, I'll get emotional. And um, yeah. yeah, the next day I went and got my new kidney. What was that like? Um, yeah, it's. I still think even now, like I get really emotional about it. It's um, it's something you can't explain to people to say you're so sick and you just want to get better. And with chronic illness, it took me a long time to get my head around the fact that this is it for life. Like, yeah there is no getting better. Like you can get treated like dialysis is a form of treatment to keep yeah. you alive and getting a kidney transplant is actually just another form of treatment. Yeah. So I still have kidney disease. It's just a lot better to have a new kidney than it is to live, you know, without one or on dialysis. So I think it's just another form of treatment, but it's, it's, it's much better treatment and you just can't wait to get that kidney. That's all you put your hopes on is like, I get this kidney, I'll be able to live life again, I'll, I'll feel so yeah. much better, or I can travel again and, and be free. It's about having freedom and choice back in your life. Yeah. So when you get that call, you're just like, oh my God, this is it. This is, this is my second chance at life. And I hear a lot of organ transplant recipients say that, like, this is my second chance. And, and yeah, you're just so overwhelmed and you don't sleep that night. I didn't sleep a wink. Like no. I was just like, oh, what? Because you don't exactly know what's going to happen. Like you don't know how you're going to feel after surgery, you know, and recovery is obviously, it's not a little, little surgery. It's a huge yeah. surgery, obviously. So you never know how you're going to react. And so, yeah, so it was huge. And so, yeah, I got the phone call. I was at work by myself <laughs> and uh, I got the phone call. And then the next morning I went in and had my surgery. You're at work when you're sick. I, I was at work. <laughs> I'm by myself. It was like 5.30. Everyone else was gone. And I, the, and I was like, who do I tell? There was no one to tell. It's like the lottery. <laughs> yeah. It was crazy. Um, so, yeah, I just quickly got on the phone and rang a few people, obviously. I was like, oh, my God, I'll get a kidney tomorrow. Like, So, yeah, it's, you, I don't think you have time to process it. You just bang, you're in and, yeah. and away you go.
and then from there so then um you obviously you go in for your surgery which is yeah it's a crazy morning like you know it's pretty full on you sort of your loved ones there with you and all your doctors and nurses and everyone around and you just yeah you go in and you wake up and you have a new kidney and um it's crazy i think when you wake up you i was high as a kite like i've got video recordings of me waking up and i'm like yeah this is fantastic oh my god i'm so excited i feel great (laughs) you know morphine obviously like on tap and and um and then the next day it's like absolute truck has hit you it is awful and uh it was just the most excruciating painful experience of my life and and you get out of bed that day like you're up they make you oh yeah yeah. You get worked. Yeah. You're like, you're out of bed. And I'm like, I'm not getting out of bed. There's no way I'm getting out of bed. But yeah, you're up and you're out of bed. And, and what I realized is the more you move around, the, the better it is straight away. But it's, uh, the recovery is tough. It's, it's not a walk in the park. Some people say it is. Some people go, oh, look, I was running around the ward within two days. Okay. Really? Good on you. <laughs> like, <laughs> pretty happy for those people. But yeah, no, I struggled. It was it was really tough for me, and I had a few complications which I had to sort of work through. And and then it's getting used to taking all the medications and the side effects of the medications, and um, learning to actually pee again, like going to the toilet because you actually most people have renal failure. You stop going to the toilet. You're right. So all of a sudden you're like got to go to the toilet all the time and it might sound weird but it's like it's very sort of like oh my god i've got to go to the toilet like this again yeah Yeah. it's really weird so there's just lots of lots of change again Mm. that you have to have to get used to so um it's a surreal just crazy crazy experience and i think so the physical side of it is huge but then you have a very big mental and emotional side of it and i think that that hit me really hard too in what way um you go through a lot of psych meetings before you have the transplant because they want to make sure that you're capable of accepting a kidney and that you're, I guess, stable. And you say accepting a kidney, what, on a very deep Yeah, level? because I now have someone else's body part in me and I find that a huge responsibility, a massive responsibility, um, to the point where I remember Christmas Day... Mm. I got really emotional because I thought there's a family out there that has got an empty chair and their loved one's gone and I've got their kidney. And it just made me, my heart went out to them and it broke my heart that I'm still alive because of them um, and they're gone. And and I, I think of that a lot and it's, to me it's a big responsibility that I need to do right by this person. I don't know who they are. They're a complete stranger. I have no idea about their background or their family or what they did in life. I don't know their name. All I know is that they're my hero. Like, I'm here because they decided to donate their organs and they saved my life. And I'll never be able to thank them or show them my gratitude that they're with me every day. Yeah. And I find that a big responsibility. You all right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. That's and I think you don't think of that at the yeah. time. You, I don't think anyone knows how they're going to react to that. And some people are great with it. I've I've spoken to other people who go other kidney recipients, and they don't even think about it. They're like, well, I don't see it like that. It's just a spare part. Hmm. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I see that too. And I think to begin with, I probably thought like that. But now, as time has got on, I I think differently, and I I feel like I 
yeah, I'm I'm living because someone else died. Yeah. And yeah, I find that hard to swallow some days. So how's your journey been with your kidney? Well, that's that's the other thing. It hasn't been great. Um, I think you're only in hospital for five days. Wow. I know it sounds. Not you a thought lot. you'd be in there for weeks. No, serious like that. it's five days. You're you're out. But what happens is, you go home after five days, but then you go to the hospital every day to get your bloods checked and they check your kidney because basically they need to make sure that your kidney is tracking in the right direction, and they have to look at how they monitor your medication. I mean, you're on so much medication after you have a kidney transplant. So you know, every day you go into hospital, and my kidney just wasn't tracking well. And it looked like it was going into rejection. So when your kidney goes into rejection, what happens is your toxin levels keep going up. So my toxins levels just keep going up and up and up. And it was like they reached about 450, which is not good. Yeah. So we started on all the treatments that you need to go on. So it was high levels of steroid dosages I went through. Um... And then they changed my medication a lot. And so and then I ended up having been admitted back into hospital for different treatments. So there was at one stage I was in hospital for about 10 days where we did this treatment called ATG, which is pretty much chemo. Yeah. Um, so I was doing chemo for six hours a day, four to six hours a day for seven days straight. And so you just do all these treatments. Yeah. And for six months, pretty much I've just done hammered absolutely everything you can think of i've had i've lost count of treatments and surgeries and poking and prodding and oh yeah and um we got to the point where we just couldn't figure out why my kidney was behaving the way it was it's not normal hmm. um i just kind of didn't fit into any regular theory and and like my doctor said to me they're very good at dealing with rejection very good because they get it so much so yeah. But mine didn't fit into that. You could sort of manage it and bring it back. Yeah, absolutely. They're great. They've got all these amazing drugs now, fantastic treatments. Most people don't have to lose their kidneys. If Mm. it goes into rejection, they bring it back. And they just weren't able to do that with me. So stabilizing my system was just trial and error. So we just tried everything. And to cut a long story short, what we discovered with me, which is quite weird, was that when I'm in like a... Horizontal. No, when I'm laying down, so what's that horizontal position? Yes. When I'm in a horizontal horizontal position, my body works quite well. My heart pumps really well. My fluids go to all the right places, and I feel quite well. When I'm vertical, when I'm sitting up or walking around, it just goes into haywire. It just goes very chaotic, and the fluids go to my legs. They don't go to my kidneys, so my organs dry out. Um, My heart goes all weird it, it goes very low blood pressure etc so it's almost like if i could live my life laying down yeah. then i'd be great but obviously i can't live like Joe that okay just like whirling around in yeah <laughs> exactly right so it's like i need a job where i'm in bed all day i just need to like be able to soak yeah exactly so let's not go there <laughs> but yeah so we've just found that there's some weird things in my body and and of the other a couple of other weird things was most renal patients can't have salt salt's really bad for renal patients with regard to fluid and different things whereas my doctors have told me to eat salt i'm actually on six salt tablets a day wow. i'm meant to eat lots of hot chips and salt and <laughs> olives and stuff because my body doesn't absorb salt and so it's just a very weird um, yeah. 
disorder that I have, which we haven't pinpointed exactly what it is. So it hasn't gone well. Like we're hoping I'll start to stabilize soon, but it's been six months. And So where are you now? Um, we're at the point where we've tried everything. Yeah. And we've sort of at the point where now we just have to be reactive. So I've suffered from quite a few infections and different things over the last few months. So we'll treat infections and illnesses as they come up. But with regards to changing my drugs or trying any other different treatments, we've hit the end of the road with that. So, so, so what does that actually mean? It's a wait and see mission, yeah. really, for me. I, I've asked my doctors so many times, does this mean that the, the longevity of my kidney is in danger and will I lose my kidney? You know, what's, what's the forecast? And they're like, we just don't know. It's unknown territory so it could last a couple of months or it could last years we just don't know so for me it's completely uncertain but I guess most people live their lives like that yes we, none of us know when our time's up I guess yeah um and with the end of the kidney does that mean no so you know obviously I could go back on dialysis yeah and that would be a decision that I would look at very seriously and I know there'll be people that listen to this and go of course you just go back on dialysis um but that's actually a question mark for me right why is that um I was really unwell on dialysis and I question the quality of life I have living on a machine and and people say yeah but you can you're still alive be grateful and I don't I am so grateful to be alive and and I I get quite nervous talking about this because I think People are probably going to judge me quite severely on it. But I think um, for me, it would be a quality of life. And I don't know if living that way again is, is what I'd be prepared to do. So what... That's the medical journey. Yes. I'm, I'm going to ask you more about the inner journey that's gone in that yeah. in just a sec. But what... Just so we understand where you are now. Yes. What does your average sort of day, week look and feel like? Yeah, um, I think that's the difference with my story and perhaps someone who's done it for quite a long time and they've probably written a self-help book or something, do you know what I mean? They've yeah. got to the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm not there yet. I'm still sort of right in amongst the battles. So um, my normal day has changed just in the last couple of weeks. So if you asked me this question probably two weeks ago, my normal day was get up at 5.30, um, get myself out of bed, get ready and be at the hospital by 7 o'clock for my first round of blood tests. And you have your blood tests and then you go see your specialist and you go through the blood tests hmm. and they weigh you, they look at your blood pressure and then they look at all your bloods and go, okay, right, so your, your toxins are so high. Okay, we're going to send you off for fluids today or this looks bad, we're going to give you some calcium or hmm. change your this medication. Daily, yeah, right. And this is a daily thing. You looked at where you were daily and you changed your meds and you had injections or you did on a daily basis. It was... So, so full on. And so you kind of, I got to a point where I was just anxious every day because I was like, oh God, what's going to happen today? What like, am I going to do Yeah, today? what needle are they going to give me today? And what injection? And how sick am I today? Or, you know, how much better am I today? And it was just this constant roller coaster. And, and that was up until two weeks ago I was doing that. And then two weeks ago they went, that's it. We're not going to monitor you every day anymore. We, we don't want you coming in. We're still treating you like you've only had your surgery two weeks ago. You've had your surgery six months ago, right? We need to push harder in the sense that 
we're going to let you just go out there and see what happens because we've got no more tests that we can do for you. We've got no more drugs that we can change for you. You've done everything. We're just going to have to send you out and pretty much just see what happens. So I still have to do this um, IVIG treatment, which is for a virus I have, and I do that every fortnight on a Friday, which is through a drip. So they're saying, we'll just see you every fortnight and let's just see how you go. What do you do with your time now? <laughs> well, that's the thing. You've got all the time. Um, I'm tired a lot though. <laughs> I'm exhausted. Yeah. So I don't, and I think the thing is, is I don't feel well. Like yeah. I, I wish I just sort of bounced out of bed every morning and went, woohoo, right, what can I do? You know, and I, I'm not at that point yet. Um, yeah. I still wake up, I go, oh God, that hurts and that hurts and okay, let's get out of bed. And I think, you know, I went from suffering from a lot of anxiety to being in quite a deep depression. So I'm still working, yeah, working through my mental health side of things at the moment. So I'm trying to figure out who I am and what I do. And I think that's why my mm. story is probably different to others in the sense that people probably don't talk about it until they've got to that point where, look at me, I'm now a motivational speaker or I've been through all this trauma and I've written a book and I'm so not there. I'm, I'm still surrounded by lemons and I have no idea how to make lemonade. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I, um, there's only one thing I do know is that I keep saying, how do I help? Like that is this little phrase that I've always got in my mind. Like, how do I help? Um, not so much myself, but how do I use this to help others? Like, how do I bring my, strategic skill set that I've got, like all yeah, my corporate knowledge and ask, yeah. how do I bring that, that real business side of me together now with this new experience of this real medical mental health, like mental side of it has been the biggest, hardest yeah, thing for me. How do I bring these two things together and help, uh, like help the world? I don't know, help other people, just help. How, yeah. how do I do that? Be of service. Yeah, I have no idea, Bryn. And that's the thing that scares me the most. That's what keeps me up at night. I'm petrified that I've got this new kidney, I'm wasting it, that I'm failing in life, that I'm just going to become this mong in the corner not knowing what I'm doing. I, I literally, that is my constant fear and I I don't have the answers yet. So. Got any inkling of the answer? Um, no, no. <laughs> Um, one of the things I've done, which has absolutely surprised me was when I first got my surgery, I said to my family, can you take videos of me? Like, yeah. I want to somehow capture this journey mm. for myself so I can look back on it and go, well done for you. You've come such a long way. Like, yeah. This was a once in a lifetime thing that hopefully I'll never have to do again is have a transplant. And I wanted to capture that somehow and diarize it. But then I also thought, oh, look, if you just video record me, then I can just send it to my mates instead of having to text everyone. And, yeah. You know, like, and, but I was thinking, I've got like, you know, Sufficient. a handful of friends, right? So I was thinking it's only a few friends I need to do this for. So anyway, I sent it to my friends and they're like, this is great. And I started doing it every day. And then I was also joined this support group, this kidney mm-hmm. transplant support group. And I thought, why don't I just post it on their site as well? And all of a sudden this thing just, it went huge, like. I just started getting all these emails and messages of support and people telling me that because I was being so raw in my video, I was crying. I was telling them how hard it was. I was saying I'm mentally drained, physically. Like I was being very real. 
yeah. I called it Raw and Emotional was the title of it. Like, yeah. I just didn't hold back. And the amount of people that were contacting me saying, you're inspiring me, you're helping me through my own journey, thank you for sharing this. And all the connections I was making and the engagement I was making with these people that I wouldn't ever have ever connected with before, I went, there's something in this. And I don't know what that is, but that to me helped me through my journey, but I felt like I was helping other people as well through their journeys. And if I can somehow continue that, then that's what I'd like to do. But I don't know how. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe people can write in and give me an idea. I don't know. But um, people were connecting with me for some reason, and I'd like to try to continue to do that somehow. So tell me about this journey then. Right. Because, like I said, you're taking me through the... The, the medical, medical side, yeah, yeah. This, this went to my body, and this went yeah. to my body, and this went to my body, right? But you know, we've gone through collapse at work, you know, yeah, careers in, in front of you, in the middle of it, in front of you, collapse at work. All of a sudden, now you have a chronic illness, which just must change everything. everything. Then it's kind of like, okay, I can manage this with drugs and 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 what have you, and things like you know. That's not good. Sense of autonomy again after having it taken away. I'm, I'm summarising. Yeah. And then, good. and then, poof. No, back to square one again. And then in this whole if and when of a transplant, and then highs of yeah, I got a transplant, and then no, it's not kind of working. Jesus, I'm worn out thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, it's exhausting. Has there been noticeable stages? Absolutely. Because we, we could be here for hours now actually oh, going through all of it. But. Totally. Absolutely. I think I, I can definitely sort of... The different stages are definitely dialysis and transplant. They, they are mm. two completely different mental, physical struggles and physical challenges, but definitely mental challenges as well. And I think I... When I was first diagnosed, it's that real acceptance. And mm. um, I remember... Um, acceptance that this is actually happening this is yeah this is it like it's almost like pre-diagnosis and post-diagnosis you have to come to a realization that you can never go back yeah. you will never be that person again yeah. and that was a huge thing for me to deal with because i was a bit of a planner i built my life the way i wanted my life to be hmm. i chose not to have children I chose the career I really wanted to do. I worked really hard at it. I put a lot of energy and effort into building the lifestyle and the life that I wanted to live in. And I loved it. Like, I loved my life. I loved my friends. I loved socializing. I loved fine dining and eating and going to theater and sport. And I was a gym junkie. Like, I, I loved who I was in life and what I was about. And yeah, you always have your own hang-ups. Like this, I mean, you know, no one's perfect. You always yeah. have issues, right? Always at work. <laughs> yeah. But within 24 hours, for me, that was all taken away. Yeah. It was completely stripped away from me. Not by choice. How did you deal with that one? Not very well. <laughs> Not very well. Um, I went into denial quite significantly. Right. It's not happening. It's not happening. It's not happening. I'm going to keep working 60-hour weeks. I'm going to keep drinking. I'm going to keep going out. I'm just going to pretend that I'm going to be okay. And physically, you can only do that for so long when you're that sick. And it bites you in the ass. 
and you know I remember so you tried to carry on even though you'd had this diagnosis oh totally I was like I don't have any kidneys that's okay I'm not on dialysis so that's okay and I fully believed I would never go on dialysis it was like I convinced myself that I'll never have to do that no way I'm never gonna have to live on a machine no that is not gonna happen so I thought you know what I'll just do what I've always done just go hard just push through so I kept exercising I kept working my ass off I kept eating what I wanted to eat I kept drinking I just kept doing it when did the penny drop about a couple months in when I was laying on the bathroom floor so sick I couldn't even get up like just so sick so things were coming out of everywhere in my body I was I was a mess and everything hurt like I literally thought this is it I'm I'm just I'm not going to survive this I remember just laying there going things have to change I either have to if I keep doing what I'm doing I'm going to die and I guess I wasn't I wasn't ready to die so I had to change I had to stop and go All right. so I stopped drinking I stopped drinking for three years I have a little drink every now and then now Um, but yeah I stopped drinking I just stopped doing hardcore exercise the way I was I became a lot more gentler and understanding of my body if I didn't feel like I could make it a day at work, I wouldn't go in. Like, I was never that person before. Yeah. I would always go to work no matter what. But I'd bring my boss and say, I can't come in today. Or I'd go in for a couple of hours and then I'd go home. And I just started living very differently and listening to my body and mm-hmm. being forgiving on myself. Forgiving um, of what? Um, I felt like a failure. Like, I felt very much like um, my body had failed me. And I was trapped in a body that I hate. I hated it. I started to hate my body. Absolutely loathed it. Um, to the point where I, I'd have showers in the dark. I've, I couldn't even look at myself. Um, I'd right. get changed in the corner of my bedroom where there was no mirror. So I couldn't even, yeah, I couldn't even look at myself. It was, yeah, it was pretty bad. And I, I lived like that for a, a long time. Um, so I just felt very trapped in a body that I didn't understand anymore and that I particularly didn't like, which was dangerous because at times it meant that I wasn't very caring towards my own body. I wouldn't nourish it properly in all ways, you know, like, you know, I'm sleeping and feeding it and, and just nourishing it. I, yeah. I just wasn't very Even good with love. <laughs> Even with love. I just did not care for my body at all. And did that change? Uh, no, I still struggle with that today. Yeah. So I still very often shower in the dark today I um I yeah I still very strong and I I have lots of scars and stuff and I it's not the scar I I don't even care about the scars I've got horrendous scars but um it's just I I, I'm not comfortable in my own skin I I I don't like what I've turned into and I um yeah I I do despise my body a lot so I feel like it's very broken and and it's um it took away my freedom and my choice in life so I have some serious issues with with my body still mm. today. Yeah. Um. So during the 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 drug and the you know, but generally looking after yourself phase, mm. what was life like there? Did you feel like you got some sense of autonomy and control back into your life? Yeah. What I after I sort of <clears throat> came out of the denial phase. I realized that there are things I can't control. 
Because one of the big senses that you have when you when you're dealt with a chronic illness is loss of control. And I'm a little bit... We of, love our control. We love our control. I'm getting the right. sense you love, love it. I love control. <laughs> I'm a control freak. And, and I think that's why this hit me so hard. Because all of a sudden, I had no choice for certain things. And I loved traveling. And I loved, you know, living a certain lifestyle. And, and that I could no longer do. So I was very restricted and very constrained. And I, I'm someone that will fight that. I fight rules. I don't like being told what I can't do. Mm. I'm someone like, if you say to me, you can't do that, I'm like, really? I'll do it a thousand times harder than if you tell me I can't (laughs) do something. So all of a sudden I was told, you're very sick. You can't do these things. You need to do these things. And I was very much like... So we have this small period of, yeah, fuck you. Really? Do this. Yeah. To the point where I used to have um, fortnightly and monthly medical appointments that I had to go to. I wouldn't go. I just wouldn't turn up um, to the point where, and I, but I'll tell everyone I was like my family thought I was going, but I wasn't. And they'd be like, how am I, you know, change. I'm all good. I'm all good. No idea how bad I was. And I was dealing with the symptom and the symptoms were absolutely debilitating. They were like, the symptoms were awful, but I was like, rather have those symptoms than almost succumb to the illness. Like, my whole thing is, like, I'm not a sick person. Mm. I refuse to be a sick person. Because that's an identity shift. Yeah, it was a label. And I was like, I'm not going to wear this label. I'm not going to join a support group. I'm not going to go have therapy. This is one of the things I wanted to ask you about. And I'll I'll come back to it in a minute. Yeah. So I was completely like, nah, you can shove this up your ass. I'm not going to have chronic illness. I love my life and I'm going to control it the way I want to control it. And what I learned very quickly is that sometimes if you don't dance with the system, you get slapped in the face. And it just kicked me in my ass so badly. Like, I was so sick. And to the point where my um, specialist, my renal specialist, wrote a letter to my family telling them how much in denial I was and how concerned she is about my health. And that they need to kick my ass and help me get back on track because I'm in severe danger of dying and I was like oh <laughs> so that was a bit of a turning point for me mm. and that's when I did, you, did they almost perform an intervention well, yeah I kind of controlled that as much as I could and tried to play it down no it's not that serious she's just been a bit dramatic but she wasn't she was being very honest and um, I then went okay get your head around this you're sick you can't yeah. deny it anymore. What are the things you can control? Yeah. And focus on that. So I could control what I put in my mouth. I could control my fluids. I could control um, how I nourished and looked after my body with exercise, food, water. Mm. I could control to a certain point how I viewed things and thought about things. So they were the things I started focusing on and that, that really helped. Mm. So you were gaining a sense of control. Yeah. And then it's taken away from you again. Yes. Yes, so then it was the, now you're on dialysis. I, yeah, I didn't, no, I did not deal with that very well at all. Did that take you to some dark places? Yeah, it did. Um, I remember the first time I had to go on it and I was in hospital and they wheeled me into the dialysis unit and it's, it's such a daunting sight. Um, so a dialysis unit in a hospital is quite scary compared to what we call a satellite clinic. Because in the hospital one, people are very gravely ill. 
in these dialysis units. So you've got a lot of people in there that are suffering from diabetes. So a lot of people that have lost their limbs, um, seriously ill, like some end of life people. So you sort of get wheeled into this space and there's these just machines everywhere and foreign noises and and blood everywhere. Like, you know, it's all about blood and, and they just start hooking you up to this machine and you've got no idea how's this going to feel is it going to hurt am i going to pass out am i going to be sick like i mean you have no idea what's about to happen and and you have to lay there for four hours and with this machine doing i don't even know what it was going to do so i think you know to begin with you don't have a lot of understanding or knowledge like no one took me through a course to go right you're about to go on dialysis Mm. This is what you can expect. This is what's going to happen. This is what it's about. No, you just get wheeled out of your hospital bed and they take you up to the up to this mm. room. You literally move from one landscape to another Yeah, landscape. with all these... And, and the nurses just go, all right. So the first time I went up to this room, they wheeled me out of my wheelchair and I just hung on to my wheelchair. I'm not getting out. I'm not doing it. I'm not... No, no, you're not going to... And they're like, come on, they're trying to pull me out of this wheelchair. And I'm like hanging on for dear life going, no, just like fuck off basically. I'm not doing this. And it was my mum. My mum was with me and she just started crying. And she was like, just do it for me. And I was like, oh, bloody hell. <laughs> so, of course, I did it. And it was probably the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. Mm. It was awful. Absolutely awful. And it doesn't hurt. Like, it, and I didn't feel well on it. Like, I, I have quite low blood pressure. So, I was sort of in and out a bit. And I just had surgery. So, I was a bit, you know, drugged up and all over the place. Mm. Um but yeah, it's a very scary, scary experience. I think here I am kept being kept alive by a machine. And I think that took, for me to get my head around that was, was really difficult. I um, didn't accept it for a long time. And, but in saying that, I always rocked up. I right. always turned up. I always went. And I think because I knew I wasn't ready for the alternative, which was death. Mm. I wasn't ready to die. I wasn't happy with my situation, but I rocked up. I did it. Mm. Yeah. So that continued? That continued for about eight months. And how were you during that? Um, you learned to deal with it? I learned to deal I didn't talk about it. So there was only certain people that I would talk to my dialysis thing about, but I was very closed off about it. I wouldn't let anyone come and see me there. I did it on my own. I would drive myself to the dialysis clinic and I would do it, and then I would drive myself home. You in a fit state? to do no no see i had really low blood pressure so you're meant to be at a certain level of blood pressure for you to be able to drive after dialysis and i i never hit it so there was big risks of me driving but i only lived around the corner it was a five minute drive and i think back i think it was very selfish of me like a stubborn mule i am because if i had a car accident hurt someone else then that i mean that's awful i think of that now absolutely it's awful but yeah, I I would go at three in the afternoon and I'd do the afternoon shift because I still wanted to be able to work, you know. Um, and you just lay there for like four hours, and it's not like everyone sits around and sings kumbaya and plays cards. It's it's not like that. Everyone keeps themselves themselves. Everyone keeps themselves themselves, and it's like you get this sense that everyone's just there fighting for their lives, right? And it's like everyone's in their own little world of hell, and you know you just yeah it's. Awful. So for me, the environment was, was really tough to deal with. So for me, I didn't really like to talk about it yeah. because I just wanted to blank it out as much as I could. Yeah. You didn't go and see counsellor psychologist or anything during that? Not while I was on dialysis, no, which I think back on it and I probably should have. 
um, I didn't. I just went. Because even just listening to you, right, there's this sense of, and you know, and, and, and feeling the story, there's this sense of this enormous psychic build-up. It's in huge. You, which kind of helped matters. Yeah. So for me, I would cry every day. So I'd cry on my way to, like, dialysis, or I'd, I'd, <clears> I just got to the point where I was just always crying about things. And I guess I didn't know it was depression. I didn't know that that's what I was going through. I just thought, well, anyone who's going through this would be feeling like this and crying yeah. all the time. And and I was very good at putting a mask on. So I was very good at walking into the office and going, all right, I'm here now. And I would look like death some days. Like, I would just, like, my eyes would be hanging out. I could hardly work, walk. Yeah, and I would be sick as a dog. And there was one guy I worked with, Lee. Oh, I love him to bits. And he'd worked with me for three years. So he worked with me from the time I was diagnosed to the time I was on dialysis. And now we're still friends. But I'd walk in and he'd just go, oh, my God, what, what are you even doing here today? And I used to just start crying, going, "Please, I just need to. I need to be here. Like, what am I going to do? Sit at home and just stare at the four walls and be a sick person?" And I just remember always saying to him, "I can't be a sick person. I can't be that person." So I just used to push myself to go to work, and the damage I think I was doing to myself, I, you know, who knows? On lots of levels. On so many levels, like on a mental level, I just wasn't dealing with it at all i wasn't talking to anyone about it i was pushing people away i lost a lot of friendships through it i was gonna ask you about this which is really tough um i had so imagine you'd lose friend thinking about this interview i'd imagine you'd lose friends because it's all too much for some oh absolutely but then yeah then you'd lose friendships the other way by just Pushing. Pushing. Yeah, I did that a lot. Especially listening to what you're saying. Yeah. About not dealing with it. I, well, no. I push my family away the most um, because I think they're the ones You always that, push the ones you love the yeah. most, don't you? But I think they're also the ones that can be the real, the realest with you. So, like, my family... So that's why you wouldn't want them. Right? I didn't want to hear it. Didn't want to hear it. Like They... Still based in Tasmania? Or? No, my mum moved here as well. So she moved here. <laughs> poor thing. She moved here, I think, like six months before I was diagnosed. <laughs> so she moved here. And, yeah, and then she's like, and then I got sick. Um, and my sister lives here as well. So they live up north. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I was lucky to have them around, but I didn't let them in. Like, I just, because I knew they could be very real with me and... You know, I'd, I'd lost so much weight. I was, you know, I'd, I'd become a recluse pretty much. I was just going to work, doing dialysis and then sleeping. I was so just drifting through life. I was, I was surviving. I wasn't living. So, so you didn't want to die, but you're surviving. Yeah. It's weird. It's like, I didn't <laughs> want to die. As you, as you listen to it. Yeah. But I also didn't want to live because I didn't feel like what I had was the life I'd created and what I wanted I didn't feel as if the life I had was my choice and and people I know will probably say you should just be grateful to be alive and I am grateful to be alive but at that point it's in time it's easy to say that yeah get on with it to and feel it and be it and do it and have it as yeah. your inner being yeah I just it was painful and I remember I remember one time I broke down and I remember saying to a friend of mine I just don't remember what it's like not to live in pain and I meant mental pain physical pain a lot I said oh give me a day I'd love to just wake up and go oh well I can get out of bed 
Oh, wow, look at that. I can put my feet on the ground and it doesn't hurt. Oh, wow, I can brush my hair without my arms getting sore. You know, I don't have to sit down because I've, I've run out of breath after, like, brushing my teeth. Like, I just wanted one day where I could just do all these little things that I used to take for granted and just live a free day. And, you know, even now I think that's all I'd want, just one day of a pain-free day. And, and you know, you, I think that, that kind of wore me down a bit, having to mm. live like that. So at what point did this all get to the point where you actually had to ask for help, help. and we're not talking about doctors and, and dialysis and transplants and stuff, actual help? Yeah, so to get on the transplant list, you mm. have to go and see a psychologist. Now, me, As you said earlier on. Yes. Now, me being me, I thought, I can wing this. I can just bluff her into believing that I'm fine. So... I can control I can control the situation. And a lot of people have said to me, you look well. Like, a lot of people go, you don't look like you're sick. And that's one thing about chronic illness. You can look really well on the outside. It doesn't mean your insides are rotten and broken and you feel like (laughs) crap. But, you know, I'm someone that will still put a face of makeup on, I'll do my hair and I'll dress really well because that was always really important to me to present myself well. And I imagine there's a level of you know, self-respect and dignity that yeah. you want to be hitting every day. Yeah. And and to me, work was, like I said, my priority. So to go to work, I have to dress and look a certain way and, you know, and present myself a certain way. So that's what I put my energy into. So I remember I went to the see the psychologist and I was like, I've got this in the bag, right? This is going to be walk in the park. I sat down and she started talking to me about, you know, how do you feel about the transplant stuff? I said, just give it to me. She's like, what? I said, look. I can't live on dialysis. Dialysis is awful. Like no one wants to live on a life support machine. It's, but you know what? Um, you shouldn't be worried about me now getting a transplant because I'm going to be brilliant after giving me a transplant. You should have been worried about me when I was first diagnosed. And I've, it's been three years now, so I've dealt with all that. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thinking, yeah, yeah, I can bluff her. Yeah. I'm mentally stable as I've dealt with it all. I've gone through all the heartache and you know all the you know the ups yeah. and downs of it i'm hardcore i'm hardcore now i'm ready to just give me the transplant she went all right yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> anyway so it was like an hour and a half and, and i was like yeah great and i was like okay good so you're just gonna sign me off and we're all good i can go on the transplant list and she goes no i was like what why <laughs> like i was like I'm, I'm like i told you i said everything that i thought you'd want to hear like i'm pretty good here right and she's like, I think we need another session. I'm like, N- 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 why? She's like, I just think I think it'd be really good for you to, to have another session. And I was like, but I'm going on the list, right? She goes, oh, I don't stop you from going on the list. I'm like, okay, good. Okay, so I just have to agree to another session and I can go on the list. Like, well, it doesn't really work like that. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so anyway, the next – and I went home and I really thought about it. I said, okay, so the next session maybe I need to be a little bit more calm. I like maybe I was a bit too ramped, you know, I was a bit amped up. So I went to the next session. She just – let me have it. She goes, you're a complete control freak. And I'm so worried that you're going to have this transplant surgery and you're going to fall apart because guess what? You can't control what's going to happen. If you go into rejection or if it doesn't work or the medications you have to have, like you can't go back to how you used to live your life. Like this is going to be a new ordinary and you need to be able to be flexible and adaptable with that. And I looked at her and said, yeah, I'm good. I'm flexible. I'm adaptable. She's like, really? No, you're not. She's like, and by the way, these last three years, there's no way you've had it together. You became a recluse. You, you know, you did this. And I was like, and, I, and it was just 
my, all my barriers sort of came down. I had to That just, must have been brutal. It was awful. I think I cried for like two hours straight with her. It was just... Yeah. And, and Somebody then, had shone the light into yeah, all the dark places. It was awful. It was almost like going... Someone had finally seen through me and they knew, she, they knew I was a fraud. And I just felt like a fraud. Was that liberating in one way? Not to begin with. Not to begin with. No, I think I felt like I have this real thing about <clears throat> failing. Like I just felt like a complete failure. Where does that come from? I don't know. I think um, my whole life I've been like that. Like as a kid, I was, you know, the straight A student. I was the one that was good at sport. I was, you know, the popular kid. Like I had, I could just do things and I could do them well. Um, and, you know, as you sort of get through life, that's doesn't becomes harder when you become an adult, right, to do things. And that's why I think, you know, I was so, you know, worked 60, 70 hours in a week in my career because I was like, I have to be good at it. I have to be the best at this. This is becoming great. Yeah, and I, and that's just who I was. So when, you know, you get a chronic illness, well, you know, you can't be great at a lot of things again. And, and I feel like I failed in my health and that somehow it was my fault. Like I was always searching, asking the doctors lots of questions like, did I do this? Is this my fault? What could I have done differently? And, and I had this real, I blamed myself for the situation I was in quite significantly. Well, Yeah. <clears throat> what would that have given you if you'd found something to blame yourself with? Um, probably just more of a, hammer to hit myself over the head with I think like that whole self-hate I have quite working working and being spared on by judgment rather than yeah I was really good at that and my first doctor actually when I was first diagnosed he came in he said to me what Chinese herbs have you been eating and, and what diuretics have you been on and I'm like sorry I said oh I'm a science girl I don't do herbs and stuff like I'm just I've never been into that stuff he goes I don't believe you I'm like I've done this. Is this my fault? He's like, we. There's something going on because basically my kidney was so dry at the time; it was dried out. But that was because hmm. my body didn't work properly. But they thought it because I was skinny. They thought it was a diet thing that I was on diuretics and that I was starving myself of fluids uh. to stay skinny. So yeah, so they thought it was actually something I'd done. And so to begin with. It was a lot about, I've done this to myself. Even though I had never taken Chinese herbs and I wasn't on diuretics, it just triggered the whole, I'm sick because of me. So that was something that continued over the last few years. So how did you move forwards after this intense session with the psychologist prior to that? Um, I started seeing her weekly. <laughs> she became my best friend in the end. So I had to learn to trust her and to trust that. Um, which was very hard for me, to be honest. I had to do it regularly. So it was something that became part of my routine was to go and sit with her and, and, and talk about my feelings and, and where I was at. And it became a relief because my biggest fear is judgment. Um, so I wouldn't talk to people about how I was feeling because I was scared that they would judge me or see me as weak because um, I always wanted to be the strong person that was successful and brave and, you know, good at life and um, by admitting that I was this broken for me was a sign of weakness so by talking to her all of a sudden I felt I found this safety net yeah where I could be completely broken I could cry and just say all my all my fears 
and she wasn't actually going to judge me. And that was the first time in my life I ever felt that. Mm. What came out from that then? Just so much. Um, no, not as in, sorry, I probably worded that wrongly. Not so much what came out in terms of being my, able to talk about My mental state. <laughs> I guess the phrase was, you, I get in the sense that you're highly strong on one side. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're de highly stringing yourself. And then almost what comes out from underneath. Because I'm getting this sense that you were so tight. You had a, such a fixed view of who Fiona was. Yeah. You decided that. But often many people on, on, on this podcast sit there and they say, you know, oh, I was like this, I was like that. And I, even in my journey, I was like this, I was like that, and da, da, da. And then all of a sudden, no, you're not. And life presents something to you. Um, you get the biscuit for the most extreme. Um, but it's almost like, no, that's not actually who you are. This is who you are. Yeah. What 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 did you learn that started to come up? That um, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I I think at times, particularly with relationships, like I was just complete shit at relationships, to be honest. Mm. And that was this is one of the questions. Did you have a boyfriend through all of this? Yes, I had a husband. Right. And. Um, Yes, it was my second husband, actually. Um, but my relationships were so bad that my psychologist, who obviously just met, she likened me to like an SAS military person. She goes, the minute that something becomes redundant or not useful for you, you just cut it off. Like if, if I had a sore limb, she goes, you would literally just cut this thing off and go, I would rather not have a limb than deal with that. And that's right. what I was like in relationships. So if someone did wrong by me in a relationship or hurt done. me in any way, I'm like, done. There's no coming back. I was just like ruthless Got and cold. No three strikes, one strike. Yeah, no, you're done. Yeah, you're yeah. out. Like you cheat on me once, we're done. Like you speak to me badly, I'm never going to forgive that. Like there's just, I was so cold and harsh. But what I realized is I was hurting myself more than anyone else. Yeah. And I was shutting people out and not having these deep, meaningful relationships because I just wouldn't let anyone in yeah. to see me because I didn't like who I was. And I had a lot of guilt in my life for different reasons. And, and so I just didn't want people to see that ugliness in me. I felt very ugly. And so I could, I had great friends and I could socialize and I was always great with socializing. Oh, yeah. I and I was, a, you know, live wire and I go out drinking, have loads of fun, but get too close to me and I'm out of there. I'd, I'd run for the hills. So mm. I think what she helped me do was disarm that and go, you you became that person because of some things that happened in your childhood and you took on this thing of I can only depend on myself. So I became this person that said... Did you unlock what it was in your childhood? Did, did I know what it was? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I had quite a turbulent childhood with my dad. So my dad struggled with mental health quite a bit and we went through a few um, different things in life from him with his businesses and his mental health and he disappeared um, in my childhood took off for, for quite some time and and you know we had to pretend that he was away on business but he wasn't he disappeared and, and it's it, gone away he just left yeah and there was lots of things that we had to deal with as children where I sort of went okay I can't depend on anyone here like you know yeah. I was very young learning that I couldn't depend on adults um, so in my head I always went when I get older, I'm not going to depend on anyone. I'm just going to depend on me. Right. Because if I mess up... Hence the focus on the career. Yeah, that's on me. So I, I felt 
career was easy, right? Go to work, do what I have to do, you know, and, and I liked being the manager because people depended on me. I didn't have to depend on other people. But I was very good at collaborating and stuff. Like, don't get me wrong, I was yeah. very good at that. But I was very, I was very on the closed box, right? You can't get into this. You can't hurt this because I won't let you let you in. So yeah, it destroyed a lot of relationships, a lot of friendships, and and what I've learned the most in this journey is that that approach served me well as a child and growing up to a certain point, but that doesn't serve me well now. Yes. And I need to be vulnerable and I need to let people help me and I need to have loving relationships. I can't be just this cold person that would chop my own limb off because someone's hurt me. Like I have to be much more loving and forgiving and and open. And um and, and the thing is I love my friends to bits. I have a couple of amazing friends in my life that I would do anything for. It's more the the, the partnership relationships that are receiving. Those, yeah, the receiving now. of it. Yeah, I'll give love easy, um, but yeah, I'm not. Yeah, good at receiving it back is the hardest. Yeah, very hard. Yeah. So all this work's going on before, during the transplant. Yeah, uh, both. So yeah, I got on the transplant list, and I was super super lucky. I was only on the transplant list for six days, which is unheard of. Before yeah. you got that phone call at work. Yeah. Most people, the average wait list in Australia is three years to get a transplant. But our wait list in WA was very low last year. And they'd done something like 840 kidney transplants or something last year, which is which is massive number. Huge. So I was super lucky. Six days. I wasn't ready. <laughs> I was like, I'm not ready for this actually. But yeah, so six days I was on the wait list and I got the call. And so... Mentally, so this must have been like weeks after that original. Yeah, it was like two weeks after the. Yeah, it was like two weeks after she sort of went. I've got your number. Yeah. And it was like two weeks later I had the transplant. Yeah. So definitely that mental journey has been the most challenging part for me. Like, I can take a needle like anyone now. Like I, I really struggled with all that. But what I've learned is like you know stitches and cuts and bruises they all heal quite quickly. Um, it's amazing what we can put our body through physically yes. and how it bounces back. But for me, mentally, uh, that, that's been the most challenging part. And what I learned, though, is that it's not the physical side that will get me through this because my body's pretty broken and it's pretty messed up. It's the mental side that will actually get me to survive and get through this. Mm. And that's not been my strength. <laughs> mm. Definitely not. What's it been like um, interacting with other chronic illness sufferers? Because I could see how, yeah. certainly listen to you, A, it's a rich source of learning and how to yes. deal with stuff, but B, it's a club you don't necessarily want to join. You don't. And I was always someone that went, I'm never joining a support group. I was the anti-support group because when I was diagnosed... My doctors and everyone's like, oh, here's all these support groups you can join. I'm like, yeah, bullshit. I'm never going to, you'll never find me in one of those. Because I had this thing that there was this bunch of sad people all sitting around going, poor me. Oh my mm, God, I'm so sick. Oh, I can't do anything. I can't work. Yeah. And that is awful. I feel so bad that that is how I stereotyped people. Yeah. And because I was so wrong about that. And I'm now in two main support groups and one's a kidney transplant support group. And these people are almost like my lifeline. They understand me and 
I can share my raw feelings and thoughts with them without judgment. Majority of them, anyway, yeah. won't judge me. Much like you started to do with the psychologist. Exactly. Because I can say to them, oh my God, I've just had this treatment last week. It's made me feel really bad. Can anyone give me advice on how they've dealt with it? And straight away you get a lot of empathy. You're like, oh yeah, I went through that. It was awful. Yeah, but sure. this happened and this happened. Have you tried this? Or have you tried, you know, drink this or eat this? And you're like, oh great, that's great, right? And what I've found is that these people in these support groups are so positive. And they have got so much energy and so much wisdom and so much insight and they are fighting for their lives and their health and you know a lifestyle and this is where I get most of my inspiration from is actually from these other people in the support groups because they get it right and they live it they live it and 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 they are just so inspirational like what some of them have been through is just awful you wouldn't wish it on anyone and um there is one thing I hear a lot of in with chronic illness people, and they say this all the time, is like, my friends don't understand me. My family don't understand me. This was one of the things I was going to ask, yeah. Yeah. They say it all the time. Because, look, we all say it at times, right? Chronic illness or not, you sit there and go, Just, the world does not understand me. Nobody my girlfriend, my boyfriend, me. my mum, my dad, my sister, yeah. my family. Yeah. The world, they just don't get me. And do you know what? They never will because none no. of us are mind and feeling readers. <laughs> but that's the thing. And I fell into that trap too. I was like, oh, my mum doesn't understand me. I'm not going to talk to her for the next couple of weeks because she just annoys me. Because yeah, I, can't, I can't be asked I to can't, explain it. I can't be dealing with it. Yeah. And and I got to the point where I became quite a recluse because I didn't want to explain it to anyone anymore. Like they go, how are you? And you just be like, yeah, good. Because you just don't want to go through it. Yeah. I can't be bothered. And then some And also, uh, sorry to butt in, yeah, I imagine right. there's, there's part of it is yeah, you can't be asked to do all the explaining. And B, every time you tell a story, you go to the energy space. Oh, totally. Totally. And the other thing is, is though, people will see you and they'll go, oh, you look well. And you're like, well, I want to look well. I don't want to look dead. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, then yeah. you get insulted. The hair my face yeah, but then you get insulted because you're like, well, I'm not well. I'm sick as a dog. <laughs> so it's this... Comp- so lose, lose. <laughs> and you're just like, I'm, men- I'm mental. I'm completely mental. And so you feel like you're just going a little bit crazy because you're like... I want to look well and I want to be better. But when people tell you you look well and you seem better, you're like, that's an insult. You don't get me. You don't understand me. You don't know how much pain I'm in. Like, it's, it's just this horrible sort of um, tug of war that you have internally with yourself. And then it's only been the last couple of months. I don't know what happened. But I, I think I was hanging out with my girlfriend who's just had a little baby. I've got two very, very precious best friends. And they've both recently had children. So one has got a little beautiful little girl who's just over a year old and the other one's got a beautiful little boy who's ten, nearly 10 months now. And I've never had children, right? So I have no idea what their daily struggles are, what it feels like to be responsible for another human being, how much that weighs on you. Like, mm. I don't know the sleepless nights and, and just the struggles that they have with their relationships with their partner, with the baby. I'll never, ever understand that because I'm, I'm never going to have children. But that doesn't matter. That that doesn't mean I don't love them or that I don't support them or I don't want to be there for them. So I flipped that back on myself and I went, hmm, okay. So my two best girlfriends, I'll never understand what it's like yeah. to walk in their shoes. They'll never understand so, what it's like to walk in my shoes. And that doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. So I kind of got rid of this whole, like, oh. the word understanding 
we should just get rid of that. Yeah. It's about just supporting each other and being there for each other, regardless of what you're going through. Because at the end of the day, I actually wouldn't want them to understand what I'm going through because I would never want them to feel the pain. Yeah, you wouldn't wish it on anyone. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. So I don't want them to understand me. I don't yeah. want them to understand my pain. And I think that's something that perhaps us people with chronic illnesses need to get better at. Yeah. And not push people away and get angry at people for not understanding. Yeah. We need to go, we don't want them to understand us. We want them to be there for us and, and show us empathy and, and help us through our yeah. bad days. But we don't need them to understand us because I'll never understand them either. Yeah, I guess listening to you and, and reflecting further out across my own experience, it's kind of, I suppose on one level, we, because asking for help mm. means that you need to understand what help you actually want and to understand what help you actually want, you actually need to understand yourself a bit better. Yeah. And you're in this freaking maelstrom. And often when you do want help, irrespective of whether you've got chronic illness or not, you're probably not in the best place to be able to articulate, oh, this is exactly what I need right now. Yeah. And so people not understanding you is probably more a function of you not being able to articulate what help you want. Absolutely. Is that right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Even sitting down with my psychologist. Or, yeah. yeah, I couldn't explain to her what I needed her to help me with. Like, I had no idea. I, I didn't really, like, I was suffering from anxiety a lot in the first stages of my illness. Mm what's going to happen next? Oh my God, needles. Mm. And like every sort of treatment I had to do, I would literally be throwing up the night before. I'd be like so crippled with anxiety. Like I couldn't breathe. I'd be having panic attacks. And then that switched to depression quite significantly. But I didn't realize I was going through depression. Mm. I just... It makes sense because now you, your whole future, which you used to be in control over. Yeah. Anxiety is fear of the future. You get that. And then when you realize... There's not a lot this you can it. do because the control has been taken out of it. Then you go to helplessness and hopelessness, which Abs is depression. Absolutely. I just fell into this rabbit hole. And I call myself a functioning depressive, though, in the sense that I still went to work because that was the yeah. most important thing to me. And I could still put on this mask. Mm. Some people saw through it. Not a lot. Most people I could fool. And then I'd go home and take the mask off, but I'd be by myself. I would mm. just completely isolate myself. So I felt like I was fooling the world. Probably not all the time, um, but I gave it a good crack at just trying to wear a happy mask and, and bluff mm. my way through life and um, it catches up with you. Mm. And yeah, so in the end, I, I had to ask for help. I had to reach out to my transplant team and, and reach out to my psychologist and say, oh, I'm actually not coping at all. Mm. I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to see the world. I don't want to talk to anyone. I I don't like myself. I'm showering in the dark. I I don't nourish my mind or body. I don't care. And it's not that I want to die. Like I said before, I just don't really care about living. So it got to that point where I was like, if I keep going like this, then I will end up dying. So I had to put my hand up and that was very hard for me because, like I said, um, you know, mental illness is something I think we've come a long way, but, you know, there's still a, a mm. lot of stigma and stuff around it and... and I saw myself as being very weak, asking for help. And mm. what I now realize is it's actually much more, it's brave and, and you're strong to ask for help. And it's, mm. it's not a weakness at all. So that was, that was something I really had to learn mm. through my journey. What are some of the, um, what are some of the strange epiphanies you've had along the way? 
Um, I think that's definitely one of them. I think mental health for me is, is I'm very open about it now. I wasn't yeah. initially, but now I'm like, we need to scream from the hilltops about it. But the epiphany I've had about mental health is that even the word mental, I think, has, is, has such a negative connotation to it. It's almost like we should talk more around mind and body and wellness as a whole. Yes. Right? Because how do you look after your mental health? It's almost, almost the same as how you look after your physical health. It's how you nourish yourself through yeah. food and water and exercise. Not, not, not connected. Yeah, exactly. And we're a whole human being. So I think my epiphany was like, oh, okay, this is a whole system I need to look after. I've got doctors who are only looking after my medical, physical side of it, like all my renal specialists and stuff. Mm. I need to make sure that I'm also looking after my other side. I need to be accountable and be an advocate for my own body and mind. Mm. And I think that was the biggest epiphany I had was like, I need to own this. I can't outsource this anymore. I can't yeah. just go, can't oh, ignore it, deny it, do not ignore it, deny it, or someone else will look after it for me. I have to stand up and be accountable for this and ask questions and don't be shy to say, I'm struggling with this. I don't understand that. No, you're not going to put that in my body. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I became to a point where I had to learn about my illness. Like I didn't, ever want to learn about it before like yeah. i just didn't and i would just literally just pull my arms out and go do whatever you want yeah. like all right wow. okay because in my mind i had donated my body to science and it was no longer my body i'd just gone do whatever you want with it i don't yeah. care about it it's crap i don't want it have it but what i realized is for me to stay alive i've got to live in this thing yeah so i had to take back ownership of my body and be accountable for what i put in it understand it and understand the consequences of the decisions around what was happening with my body. Yeah. That has been huge. And that is something I'm still dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And I'm still learning every day. And I think that is something that we could all learn how to do better. And, and I think we sort of see mental health as something you deal with when you have a trauma. Yes. Or when something goes wrong. Or, you know, or it's something that you're institutionalized for. Or, you know, it's this massive thing in life mm. where it shouldn't be. It should just be like going to the gym. Yeah. We should be looking after our mental health on a daily basis just the way we do our physical health. And we're just, I don't so, think we're there yet. Yeah. So somehow we need to ingrain from a very young age with children or whatever. It's like, it's all one thing. Don't yeah. look at it differently and, and don't think mental health only happens when you're suicidal or when you're institutionalized no, no, or no. when something bad Because that's like the equivalent of, of, of only really paying attention to your body when it's right in need. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So... That's why I think... Mental health at the point of suicide. Mental health, no, yeah. Way before. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, Are You Okay and Beyond Blue and, and all those organisations have done so much for mental health. And, you know, I'm very honest with like 14 years ago, I think I mentioned it to you 14 years ago, my dad committed suicide. Mm. And that was a huge turning point in my life. But I never really got it. I, I always wanted to say that I understood why he did it and that... I chose to choose to treat it like a cancer. So you would never get angry at someone for dying of cancer. Yeah. So I went, well, I can't get angry at my dad for committing suicide because it was like a cancer of his mind is the way I looked at it. So I was like, he had a mind disease and he, yeah. he couldn't live any longer, so he died. So I sort of dealt with it that way. But I always had this guilt where I thought I wasn't enough for him to stay alive for. So why, why couldn't I keep him alive? Why wasn't I enough for him? I wasn't good enough. So some of my... 
I have to be good at everything stems from that as well. So, you know, if I was better at my job, if I was a better daughter, if I was mm. a better sister, maybe he'd still be alive. Completely irrational. I get that. Not logical at all. Mm. But that was my feelings. But it's your logic at your time. Exactly. Whereas now, I see it completely differently because I had a moment, I think I was meant to use well, I had a moment where I was laying on the bathroom floor and I was so sick. And I just wanted everything to stop. I wanted the pain to stop. I wanted, uh, I just wanted to sleep and I wanted to be peaceful because I don't sleep very well anymore and it's awful. So I was like, I want everything to stop. And then I thought, oh, wow, dad, I get it. I completely get it. Perhaps he didn't want to die, but he wanted the pain to stop. And I, I got it. And I was like, that was a, a massive epiphany for me mm. as well in the sense that I don't want to live like this anymore, but I don't want to die. I just want mm. this all to stop. And yeah, that was, that was a big moment for me. How do you, what sort of strategies have you developed to deal with pain? Because obviously it's a, mm. it's a daily feature of your life. Yeah, it's huge. Um, as I said, I'm not at the end of my journey yet. I'm still right in amongst it. So yeah. some of this stuff, I probably can't really give good advice to other people, but this is what I do. Mm. So if I've got my head in a bucket or I'm, crawling to the bathroom because I'm so sick again I'll go okay so right now this is I'm, I'm, I'm hurting this is this pain I'm throwing up I'm or whatever I'm doing this is really painful but do you know what if I get through this probably take me a good half an hour mm. then half an hour after that I can have a cup of tea and I'll go okay that's okay all right so this is hurting right now but I'll yeah. get a cup of tea in an hour it'll be over and it'll be over and I can in have a, a cup of tea yeah, yeah. so let's okay Right, let's just throw up and get through this. And it's same in hospital. So when I come out of a surgery or when I'm having a treatment, I'll go, I'll always say, how long is this treatment going to take? And a lot of my treatments I'm awake for, which is awful. Anyway, that's another story. (laughs) And they'll say, okay, this will take an hour or take an hour and a half. I'll go, okay, so it's four o'clock now. Okay, so if I get out of here, by the time I recover, I'll get back to my room and Survivor will be on TV. Okay? Yeah. Cool. That's great. I'll be there. I can get to watch Survivor in a couple of hours. So do you know what? Do what you have to do. I'm okay. Think of Survivor. Yeah, well, and, and, and it sounds bizarre, but I had to literally break my days down into hours to sort of get through it. And I still do that now. That's the best thing I do. I don't try to look forward too much. I don't know what I'm doing next week, mm. next month. I, I don't know. Um, I just try and get through my days day by day and hour by hour when I need to. That's, that's all I've got not that clever but that's all no, i've no, got no. <laughs> I, I was i yeah i was interested to know how you actually mentally process it and do yeah, it yeah that's that's about it so um you mentioned earlier on that from your transplant you wanted to you started doing these videos yes and you've shared you now share share your journey quite yeah. openly and honestly on facebook yeah i do and you've started doing your own little podcast Mm. With Suzanne, yes, former guest on here, uh, stripped. Yeah, um, is that the next level of vulnerability? Oh, yeah, it or, is. Yeah, it is. Um, the videos I'm quite comfortable with now. Yeah. Um, but to be honest, if you look back, if you went to my Facebook site, you'd see there's two months where there's none. Mm. And that's when I was in my really dark, dark place. I couldn't do a video. I couldn't. Was that, put that in context to 
just so I understand medical proceedings and also uh, in a in a journey proceeding. Sure. Given the fact you've you've taken us through both. Yeah. So basically, I had my transplant, and I was it was about the two month mark where I should have been almost Sorry, back at work. I should have been hardly going to the hospital. I was still going to the hospital daily. Yeah. I was doing all these treatments. I was in rejection. Nothing was working. Mm. My toxins were so high. I felt sicker than I'd ever felt in my whole life. Have you seen a psychologist as well? Seen a psychologist weekly, sometimes twice weekly. Yeah. And where were you with that? Um, oh, look, I was in a dark place. I was just yeah. absolutely dark place. She's like, you're, you're full depression. I was complete recluse. Wasn't talking to people. Couldn't get out of bed. I didn't care about myself at all. Mm. This was at the point where I was like, I remember her actually saying to me, are you nourishing yourself? And I was like, no, just no. She's like, okay, are you even eating? Like, do we need to get, you know, someone in to help you? Like I was seeing um, nutritionists, psychologists. Mm. I was, they're throwing everything at me at this point. I'd hit the lowest point. Like I was in a dark, dark place and I just didn't, I could not see any way out. I, there was no light for me at the end of the tunnel. So I stopped doing my videos because I could not share that level of pain and vulnerability with anyone. I couldn't even stand to look at myself. So yeah. how could I let anyone else see see me? Um, I started wearing a cap. Like a lot of my videos, people see I have a hat on, a cap. Yeah. And that became my safety net. I would literally just pull this cap down. I was trying to hide face. my face. Yeah. And I'd wear the same black tracksuit pants and the same grey jumper every day. It just became, that was me trying to hide who I was. So it was a good two months of real full-on therapy. Like, I mean, it was full-on um, therapy to try and get out of that. And I came out of it a little bit and I started doing videos a little bit. But you see, they're nowhere near as consistent. I was doing a video almost every day. Yeah. Before that, for two months. And then over the last um, four months since my transplant, mm. it's quite hit and miss when I do them. So, because I have been scared that people will judge me for not being grateful for my new kidney. Mm. So, I'm scared that if I show people my struggles and how sad I am, that people will think you should be grateful you got a new kidney. Like, just get on with it. Like, just get on with life. What are you doing? What's wrong with you? Well, if it worked, you would. <laughs> exactly. And it's not working the way it is. So I've been very scared of sharing sharing that to be right. judged. That's been my... Having that fun, putting myself That's out judgment. there. Is judgment. It's huge. Because I feel as if I've, fa I've, I've failed this gift and I've failed the person who gave it to me, my donor. I've failed right. them by not being able to look after his kidney. So that's been what I've been trying to go through in my therapy is to get over this. I'm such a failure in everything I do. So mm. that's been what I've. Where been are to. you now with that? I'm better. Um, as I said, I'm still not. I still don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm. I'm still trying to figure figure that out. Yeah. Um, I think I'm probably there's something that my therapist has told me. Like whenever that negativity train comes through, just don't get on it. Yes. <laughs> it sounds really simple, no, 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 no. but that's what I'm trying to do. So I have these thoughts like, okay, I can't share that with that person because they're going to judge me. Actually, you know what? Don't get on that train. Just share it. See what happens. Like I'm trying to be a little bit more, um, less controlled, more open and, and leave my barriers down a little bit. So, um, I'm doing a little bit more videos again, 
yeah. not as much as I used to, but this stripped concept, this podcast concept that came out with Suzanne, Suzanne was someone that for some reason I just trust without boundaries. And I was able to talk to her about what I was going through just completely open. And I felt like she would, ne I mean, you've met her. This woman is amazing. She just never judged me. And I knew that and I could feel that. So we were having these crazy conversations about losing friendships and hmm. sex and relationships and failure of, um, you know, fear of failure and, and fear of death and fear of life and we're having all the and she's like we should we should record these i'm like no way in hell i was like yeah. what like that was my first reaction like why would i let anyone hear this stuff this like they think i'm crazy like that would completely judge me on this she's like fee but your message is so much around mental health and you know from what your dad went through and what you've been through why wouldn't you want to help other people if if you can she goes look People might not listen to it, but people might listen to it. Yeah. So we sort of started playing with it a bit. And she's like, we're the same. Like, you've been stripped of all these things in your life through your illness. And I'm, whereas she's choosing to strip back a lot of things in her life, like negativity and different yeah. friendships. And, you know, she's lost a lot of weight and relationships and stuff. So she's like, we're doing the same thing, but from different perspectives. Yeah. So we've got the same fears and failures and fortunes. But from such different angles, wouldn't it be cool to sort of talk about that and share these experiences with people around the same topics, but from completely different viewpoints? And I went, actually, that's not a bad idea. So that's what we're doing. And I'm going to have to be very vulnerable. I'm, I'm anxious. I'm, I'll mm. be honest. I'm very scared about this podcast well, you're doing it already on this <laughs> i know and and suzanne actually said this is a good test for me to see if i can actually do it and you know i think i want to share it because i think if i could help even just one person then yeah then that's a positive right so we'll see so yeah stripped i'm pretty excited i am very excited about it yeah very anxious about it yeah but i'm very excited that's the worst that can happen <laughs> no one listens and it's just susan and i having a good chat you know I still get a therapy session out of it. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, I wanted to ask you some sort of curiosity questions, given where you are and what you've been through. Um, so, has there been times in this where it's difficult for me? I don't know how to put this question together. Um, how we can be surrounded by loved ones oh. yet there is still a big aspect to the fact that we are alone mm -hmm. um how have you had have you dealt and balanced that i mean to be honest listening to you you've spent quite a lot of time on your own yeah being very much in your own so i suppose it's more bringing the loved ones in yeah but it i could see also how something like this you know you, we could be spending our time been so connected to others connected to the things that we do careers and stuff like that that we realize boom you, on one level we are on our own and we have to be responsible for that yeah and comfortable with that yes we do i think um does that make sense absolutely you're absolutely right i think early on in my, once i was diagnosed i realized that i, I i'm the one doing this I, i'm the one taking all the needles Correct. i'm the one doing all the surgeries 
And no matter how much my mum or anyone would say, I'm there for you, I'd look at them and go, well, you can't. I used to say, well, yeah. you can't be there for me. You can't be on the machine. Because you me. can't do this for me. And I used to say, can yeah. you do this? And, and I think, to begin with, I was aggressive about it. I was angry about it. Yeah. And I took it out on people. And it was awful. It was awful the way I was. Because these people were saying, we love you. We don't know how to help you. And I'd be like, well, you just can't. So get over it. Yeah. And basically I did. And I pushed and I pushed a lot of people away. And throughout this whole journey, I've had to recalibrate myself. And I think what I'm grateful of more than anything, again, is chronic illness, is I do believe I'm a better version of myself than I was. I believe that 100%. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Because I think that if I didn't go through this, I would still be that super independent person that believed it was all on me. If I did everything myself, no one could take anything away from me. What I learned through this is that even though I was doing everything on my own, my, my career, you know, my health, everything I did myself, I still lost it all. It still got stripped away from me. So I was like, hang on, you can't control everything. You can't be so independent and do everything on your own that mm. you're safeguarding yourself. I, I, I couldn't safeguard myself from this. This happened regardless. So that's what I learned. And from that and from my therapy mainly, she's been like, let's see how you can bring people in and how you need them. Yes, they can't walk in your shoes. They can't take no. the pain for you. And at 2 o'clock in the morning is usually when I feel my loneliest, right, because I'm either in a hospital bed or I'm at home and I don't sleep a lot now because of the drugs and different things. So it's always this 2 o'clock in the morning where you're like, I can't ring anyone. Hmm. Everyone's asleep. I can't, I, I can't watch any more TV. I can't read. And it's hmm. just this, you just I go into almost this panic like, oh, my God, I'm so alone. I'm so alone right now. And you just, they're, they're, they're the times that I have to sort of work on myself and get through hmm. Because that can be confronting because you are actually with that person. Yeah. You. I am me. This is it. Yeah. Yeah. And even listening to, you know, the whole, that's busy at work, busy at this, busy at that. Yeah. One of the things I noticed from from doing this podcast is that busyness. Oh, yeah. Is is an unseen addiction. Oh, yeah. I loved it. I loved it. I felt... If I was busy... Because it, it means you don't have to deal with... You don't have to deal with anything. ...what's in here. Uh-uh. And That's what I did with my relationships. I'd work weekends. I'd work till 8 o'clock at night. Great, didn't have to go home. Or if you go home, it's just a little bit of time that you have to sit there, watch a little bit of TV and go to bed, right? So you don't have to deal with anything. I was the master of that. I was brilliant at that. Sliding through, drifting through. Things. Yeah. But, you know, I had great friend, like friends I'd give time to and stuff like that. But I just... Yeah, I, I was just so good at just not having to deal with me yeah because i wasn't running away from anyone else at the end of the day i was trying to run away from me and i think through this journey i've realized that you have caught up with you i have caught up with me and for the first time in my life i'm dealing with me and i've got a long way to go Mm. um and part of this beautiful friendships that i found through the support groups which i by the way remember i said there was no way I was ever going to be part of a support group. They helped me beyond anyone, apart from one other girlfriend, helped me more for me to open up and be vulnerable and connect with people. Because mm. I found it easy because it was on a computer, right? Yeah. I didn't have to sit face to face. It's a good start. It's a good start. And that has really helped me now reconnect a lot with other people and, yeah, and, mm. and trust people. I've had one girlfriend, I remember one girlfriend I've met, 
just over a couple of years ago. So I haven't known her my whole life or anything. And when I got sick, she said to me, I promise, Fiona, I promise you, I'll be on this journey with you every step of the way. And I went, yeah, yeah, whatever. She has been on this journey with me every step of the day. She doesn't give me advice or she doesn't know what to say to me, but she rings me or texts me every day. And she's done that for the last six months since I've had my transplant. And I love her and thank her for that because I, I, it's just the most beautiful friendship in the world and I couldn't have done this without her. And she's been the one person I've let in and just cry on the phone with her or whatever it is. But, you know, it's having that in my life has been pretty amazing. Mm. How's your relationship with death changed? With death? Yes. Um, so, but it's something you never really thought about before. Well, I did think about death a lot because of my dad. Oh, yeah, of course. So I questioned death a lot after my dad committed suicide because I was like, well, is it an option? It, I know it sounds weird, but it almost became an option in life. Mm. It because became, a significant role model had chosen it. Yeah, my dad chose to die. And I'll never forget this. I was at the time working in Sydney and I was really struggling with my dad's death for quite a time. Yeah. And... I remember I went into work one day and my boss said to me, you know, you're not hitting your targets like you used to. You're not performing as high as you used to. My dad only been dead like three or four weeks at this point. And I was like, I'm not being funny, but like, I've just buried my father. Like, I'm not feeling very salesy at the moment, you know? <laughs> like, I was in a sales role. And I was like, I'm really struggling. So yeah, can yeah. you give me a bit of a leeway in a couple more weeks? And she turned to me, she goes, you know, my mother died last year. I went, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm sorry about that. She goes, but your dad chose to die. And I remember just going, what? I walked away going, I felt guilty. Oh, yeah, he did choose to die and your mother didn't. And then I went, no, fuck you. And I, <laughs> I was like... Sounds like for a minute you're actually entertained. Yeah, I did. I went, what a messed up thing to say. And I walked in and I said, I quit. Shove your job up your ass. That is the worst. That is the cruelest yeah. thing you could ever say to someone. I said, you need to really think about what you just said to me because that's just wrong. You've got no idea who yeah. my dad was. And yes, he committed suicide. And I haven't shied away from sharing that. But don't you dare like, say something like that, that his death should be less painful because he chose to die. Oh, it was, yeah, crazy. So I think from that point on, my thoughts around death have been quite different and maybe a bit quirky. And mm. you know, I don't believe in forever. Like, nothing's forever. Like, you know, marriage, anything. I just don't believe in forever. And I, I think death can come at any point in time and... I guess I'm probably not as scared of death as I once was. I kind of think, well, it's going to happen. Like, okay, my risk of dying is probably greater than other people because of what I've got. So, you know, I could get an infection because I've got no white blood cell count. You know, I could die probably quicker than someone who just got a cold or whatever, you know. So mine could progress quite quickly and die. So I think death is, is a reality for me. I, I think about it quite often. It sort of sits at the front of my mind I yeah. I have things called I call them my death dreams where um, I was sleeping everyone that's ever died in my life is in my dream and we're hanging out and we're chatting and we're just doing normal things and I wake up going oh wow okay that was a bit full on so yeah so I think death for me is something that I'm quite accepting of it um, doesn't mean I'm not scared to die yeah. of course I am but I also don't I don't dwell on the fact that I could, mm. I could die tomorrow I think you know we'll see what happens um, are you a religious person? No. Well, Have you started to consider anything bigger than yourself? Yeah, well, <laughs> see, oh, this is the thing. Like, I love being around spiritual people. 
But I grew up a Roman Catholic because I'd been Italian. Mm. So you go to the school and oh, I just found it awful. Like, I don't know if you know much about Roman Catholic, but I don't want to offend anyone. But the way I, I found it was everything's a sin. You're, everything's bad. You're bad, yeah. you're bad, you're bad. And you've got to confess all your sins all the time. Judgment. And it was complete judgment, right? So I grew up, I call it my, my Catholic guilt. I always feel guilty for everything. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I feel guilty. I, I'm feared of being judged. And I think a lot of it stems from that. Like, this is just my personal journey. That's my feeling. So I'm, mm. I, I sort of threw away religion in my teenage years and went, I don't agree with any of this. This is awful. I get very anxious when I have to go into a church or anything. I just, I do not feel comfortable with it at all. But I love being around people that are kind of um, spiritual in the sense that this is more than just about us, right? I do believe that it's about the greater good of the world and being kind and having morals and good ethics and stuff and good values. So I fully believe in all that. I don't believe I have to worship a God to mm. have um, good values and, and treat people kindly. I think religion to me is how you treat others. And I think that I try to be a kind person and to be the best version I can of myself. And to me, that's been a good, a, a good religious person in, in its own right. So I guess that's how I see it. I, even in my darkest moments, I haven't started to pray or anything like that. Right. I just, that hasn't come to me. Cause that sort of leads me on to the next one in terms of, you know, we use the word, you use the word stripped earlier on into you used it and also in your podcast. Um, I find that there are moments in life when everything, all the shit just gets stripped away and, and, the, and your core identity and your core beliefs are the only things that stay. Oh, totally. You've had that. Oh, absolutely. What sort of things have, have just stayed? Um, for me, it's, it's that real kindness. It's, it's just how do I, and I know it sounds weird, but this sentence just keeps coming to mind. How do I help? Yeah. I'm like, if I have to go through all this pain and, and I have to live this way and, and not perhaps be who I always thought I wanted to be, I have to be this other person, then what good can come out of that? Yeah. And I, I hate all those cliche sayings, you know, something happens for a reason and, you know, just think positive and all that. I'm not good with those. Yeah. I'm more of a person that go, what's the action, right? Yeah. So being stripped down to me in my core is about being just be a good person like this sucks god this sucks and this hurts so much but how can you maybe help other people about it so what's been interesting for me is i feel again i used to probably be quite selfish and i was very focused on where am i going to get in life how can i be really good at my career me, 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 me. yeah how can i earn more money and how can i get that beautiful range rover and it was i was very like that not that i would step on anyone's throat or anything to climb the corporate ladder. I wasn't that person, but I was very focused and I would sacrifice other things in life to do that. So I was, you kind of narrow in on yourself. What I found is being stripped away from everything. I'm kind of become more broader. Yes. I haven't narrowed so your in. your focus has expanded. It's got broader and all of a sudden I've gone, and I think this is why I'm lost. I'm a bit like, what's the greater good here? Like, what What can I, how can I help? Like, how can I make lemonade out of lemons? Like, I, but it's not about me all of a sudden. And that's kind of different. That's very different for me, to be honest. Yeah. It's all of a sudden about 
other people and that's why I've enjoyed doing my videos because the people that have been saying you've inspired me you've helped me I'm like oh great that's awesome and same as stripped if I can share my mental you know my mental health stories and the struggles I've been through and be really real about it and I'm not at the end of my journey yet so I can't give good advice or anything I can just say hey look it sucks to be like this and you're not alone yeah. perhaps and help other people then that's what I want to do so it's like the blinkers have come off it's it's weird it's all of a sudden going I'm sort of looking around going wow this isn't about me anymore hmm um So often towards the end of a podcast, I start asking guests, so what's the next three to five years look like for a guest? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and that's why I thought I'd be a really crap person for you to interview because I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I want to be alive. I think I've realized that. Um, and I want to try and help others somehow, which is such a cliche. I, I do realize that, like a lot of people. But it's not. The amount of people that, again, through the podcast and outside of the podcast that I meet that get to this point, realisation, awakening, whatever you want to yeah, call it. Enlightenment, right? yeah. Enlightenment, expansion of perspective, yeah, just like you've just yeah. said. Where you realise, whoa, it is bigger than me. It's not just me. And there are others. How can I serve? And you get this natural desire to want to serve. And, you know... Um, I've spent an amount of time looking at the different phases of life and this I mean how old are you? <laughs> in my in my 40s there you go and that's, about right. yeah, and that's about right and yeah. that now the the desire to want to serve others does switch on for yeah. us yeah and I, I feel proud that as a my management style has always been that is like, I always believed in the reverse triangle that I'm here for you. You don't work yeah. for me. So yeah. I feel like I have been like that in my life, um, at work, which is a bit of a contradiction to like how I see life and what I mm. used to try and do. But that was, I used to be quite proud of that was my management style. So now it's bigger than that. I don't see it as just about my career now. It's about saying, how can I bring all my skill sets together and my experience that I've had? Mm. What can I do with that? I mean, any ideas would be great, Bryn, you know? Well, <laughs> if I could be frank with you, Fiona, I'd listen back to this podcast because I think quite a lot of your answers are you told us today. Do you reckon? Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I would have a listen to this. This again. is like the best therapy session ever. <laughs> you're going to share it with everybody. Yeah, and everyone's going to go, she's a little bit crazy. <laughs> I, would, I, I, I don't know what the listeners would say, but... I would listen to this and listen to what you've said. Right. Because one minute you're saying to me, oh, I really don't know what it is I can do and offer. And then the next minute it's like, I'm sharing these videos and then all these people are connecting and they've said they find this inspiration and this and that and da 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 da. Yeah. I think you'll find you doing it. Oh, thank you. Wow. You're possibly overthinking it. Possibly. And, I, and yeah, my doctors do say that to me. But I think I'm. I, I'm very scatty, so I'm sorry. If, I'm sorry to listeners and to you. This has been a little bit scatty, but no, as I said, not. I'm still in it. So yeah. I feel, um, I feel like I am. A, I'm confused. I'm a bit all over the place. I, um, I always knew where I was going in life, right? So my mm. last job, I, I had a plan to be in there for the next amount of time because I was going to be a CTO, 
right? That was it. I was going to be a chief technology officer. That's where I was going. And then I became ill and that fell away. But I always knew my next thing. I was, this is it. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. And and I was very confident in in my next steps in life. So, And a phrase you've used frequently is, you know, I don't know. I can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You've used it several times. Yeah, I've got no idea. Maybe you don't need it. Well, maybe. There we go. Um, What is Fiona grateful for? Oh, obviously uh, for the gifts that I've received from my deceased donor. I'm so grateful the fact that he had, um, you know, the insight to want to be an organ donor and to help someone else live. And and there's no words that can express my gratitude for that. I think, so apart from that physical, you know, having a new kidney, obviously super, super grateful for that, regardless of how sad I get or how hard it is, always grateful for that. I'm grateful for people who have loved me see and believed in me when I couldn't do it so I lost a lot of belief in myself and I didn't love myself at all through this journey a lot of times and there's been some people that haven't given up on me I'm so grateful for that and some people did give up on me and like I said I lost some very close friendships through this and some close relationships and I look back and I played a big role in that as well as them you know um so but there's been a couple of people that have just not given up on me and gosh, I can't, I can't express my gratitude to them enough. It's pretty amazing. Hmm. Has there been any sort of regular things that you do to try and at least ground yourself and bring it back together or? Um, yeah, I can't say that I've been very consistent with many things I think depression that does that to you a little bit yeah um I have been absolutely tenacious with turning up I know that sounds bizarre but I turn up I don't want to go I don't want to get that needle in me and I don't want to be cut open today and I don't want them to stick some prong up somewhere and you know I I, I don't want to do those things but I turn up every time and that's one thing that my doctors have said to me we've never met anyone as tenacious as you Right, and I might be crying, I might be you know losing my mind over it a bit, but yeah. I would turn up, and I think for me that has given me some feeling of perhaps strength and and i can I can look at myself and feel proud for that that in the six months that I've been through, like I, most people I could never explain what I've been through in six months, yeah, and they'll never get it. I can look back and for myself, I can look and go i'm proud of I'm proud that I I kept trying. They threw everything at me and I got hit a lot and I just kept getting up and I just kept getting up. Yeah. And uh, I think that's that's the only consistent thing I can say. Um, I just kept getting up. Cool. Um, are there any, like, nuggets of learning that you would just love to pass out to those who are not, uh, not chronically ill? That are not chronically ill. Yeah. Um, Going about their everyday life. You know, there's something that people say to me a lot. They're like, how can we help you? Like, how? Yeah. I want to help you. And and particularly my best friend, um, I'll say her name, Delara. She's just an absolute angel. She said to me so many times in the last six months, how can I help you? And I'll say to her, live your life. Yes. Like, live with gratitude. Like, I can't live my life the way I want to right now. 
So, do so you do it for me, and yeah. you do it for everyone that can't. And that's what I'd say to people that aren't living with pain every day, or that aren't, you know, living with a chronic illness. And yeah, they're going to get down over different things. And that's fine. I'm not saying you have to always be upbeat. That's not. That's no, not. Possible. That's not what you're saying. No, I'm not saying that at all. And I'm just saying, just live your life because tomorrow, like me. I was struck down with a chronic illness with no warning. I didn't know that this was going to be my world. And luckily I would say I was living my life to the fullest. I was loving life mm. completely. And I just think get out there and, and, and do what you want to do and live your life on your terms and enjoy it and, and don't let anything hold you back because tomorrow might never come. Mm. Or tomorrow might be a very different shade that you thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I also think the other thing to people is like, don't treat mental health as something that's just institutionalized or something that is when you're crazy or something that's bipolar or something that's extreme. Treat your body as a whole. Like look after your system, nourish it, you know, your mind and your body. Because what I've learned is when you have to deal with trauma like this, you're in a much better place if you are consistently looking after your body and your mind every day. Yes. If you're only looking after your body, that's only 50% of it, let's say. So mm, when, you hit it, when you hit the trauma, you're like, you're not game fit. Yeah. Right? And you're going to struggle like me. Like, I got You've smacked got down. <laughs> right? Yeah. But if you're consistently looking after your body, like you go to the gym three times a week, then you should be doing that for your mind as well. So, you know, I just think people that are well um, do that. Like, don't wait till something bad happens. Then go, okay, now how do I deal with this? Yeah. Because it's too late. Mm. It's way too late. So, why did you agree to come on the podcast? Um, that, that's an interesting one because it scared the living crap out of me, to be honest. Yeah. And I also thought, I'm just a nobody. Like, why would you want to talk to me? Like, I, I haven't done anything special. I haven't cured anyone or done anything. And, and so I thought of two things, actually. I thought, one, great therapy session, to be honest. <laughs> Um, the more I learn to be vulnerable and to share my story, I think personally that is better for me and, and I think I'm getting better at it. Two, I kind of had this how can I help thing going on in my mind and yeah. I thought, I don't know, maybe this might help someone in some way. So that's always a good thing and if that's what I'm about now, then I should give it a go. And, and I, I, I listen to you and I, I listen to some of your podcasts and I just think it's amazing what you're doing. And, you know, and you're a really interesting guy yourself. And, and I love telling stories. I've always been like storytelling is such a powerful way of, of um, people helping each other and sharing experiences in life. So I think it's a fantastic concept. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Do you think we've, um, we've done the job and covered it? I hope I haven't. Have I just rambled? Has it just been like a complete ramble, like up and down and everywhere? No, because I've kept you on track. Oh, good. Okay. You've done a good job. Yes, of course. I think so. I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, one of the big messages, you know, I, I've wanted to help other people with is, is mental struggle of things. Like, yeah, it's, it's a big physical thing to go through transplant and, and everyone please be an organ donor. Only takes yeah. 30 seconds to go. You have to register though. Don't know if people know that. Um, but only one in three Australians are registered at the moment. So we've got a long way to go still. So I think, you know, be a hero in death is so important. You know, why take your organs to the grave? Mm. There's no point in that. And how nice is it to think that something good comes out of your death? Mm. How beautiful is that? 
You can be a hero. Everyone can be a hero. And the other thing is, is that I thought you could only give your organs, right? So some people are like, I've had cancer, so I've had chemo, so I can't give my organs or anything. But that's not true because you can give skin and tissue. Um, so everyone can be a donor. And you can also donate your body to science. So how good is that? So, you know, I think donorship's a huge thing. Mental health is a massive thing for me. I think the physical side of things, kind of, it's important but not as important to me. Um, that I wanted to share with you today. It's more around saying, you know what, it's we've got all got struggles that we have to go through and um, we need to treat our bodies and our mind more as one and look after ourselves better. And I think the more we talk about it, the better. We talk about it lows. Like if I look back to when my dad died, when my dad committed suicide, we didn't really talk about it very much 14 years ago. No. It was pretty brushed under the carpet, right? And now, you know, with Are You OK and Beyond Blue and different things, we're doing much better. But I still think we've got a long way to go. long way to go. Yeah, because I still, like I said, my fear is I'm going to be judged of sharing my story and saying how sad I am at times, even though I've got a new kidney. So I still feel like that. I'm sure other people feel the same. So if people want to find you, Fiona, where do they find you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, easy. So I'm on, I'm on Facebook, um, yep. Fiona DiStefanis. And also, if you look for Stripped Podcast, I'm on there with Susan Waldron. And that is really going to be my sort of next adventure. Um, you know, like I said, two women sharing uncensored. It's completely off the cuff, like no rehearsal. Don't even know what we're going to be talking about each week. And we're just going to share share our experiences with what we're going through from two different lenses. So I think, um, and as you know, Suzanne, she's... She's a live wire, that one. So I think yes. it's going to be some very great conversations. And, and Suzanne's very spiritual and, and she's got a great depth to her, which I think I'm lacking. So I think there's going to be, um, yeah, it's going to be really interesting conversations because I think she helps me, helps me be a better version of myself as well. Mm. So, yeah, so they can find me through that stripped podcast. It's, um, it's exciting. And apart from that, I don't know. Yet, <laughs> but if anyone's got any ideas, they can message me and yeah. give me an idea on what else I can do. Because I'm starting to find I've got a lot of time on my hands, yeah. <laughs> and um, I know I can't go back to what I used to do. So I have to look forward to see perhaps what I can become. There you go, Fiona. It's been an absolute privilege to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for thank having you, me. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>